Thank you very much. I don't know where to begin after a talk like we've just heard. I feel very small up here, given the challenges that we face. And what I'm going to talk about today um, really is only a very small part of what has to happen. Because I'm just going to talk about some of the laboratory research that goes on uh, here on campus. But it reflects some of the laboratory research that goes on around this country. And actually, let me just take a moment to say that in response to the types of challenges you just heard about, the plant science community in the US has come together, has selected representatives that have met twice, uh, 2011 and again in 2013, to organize our own thinking on what we can actually do as plant researchers to come together, understand what these challenges look like, and define our own research priorities. The summary of that is now going to come out in what's called the National Plant Science Initiative. It's a proposal that will go to the Obama administration and to Congress, coming from the scientific community, as our own prioritization of where we think we need to go in order to be the most useful to this country. So I hope that all of you will attempt to get a copy of that. It will be coming out in probably the next month and a half. And it represents, really, I think, a good compendium and a very thorough thinking through of these issues by the plant science community. So let me just tell you a little bit about some of the options we can think about. What you're looking at up there is a satellite picture of the US last summer as we were experiencing that drought that we saw here in Nebraska take hold. Uh, and of course, you're seeing some of those images that we saw as well. Am I going to be able to have control of this? OK, so let me tell you a little bit about the way plants operate. For the most part, we have thought about genetics in a little bit of a vacuum up to now. Those of us who are plant breeders and plant geneticists have been thinking that if we knew more about the nature of genes and about the numbers of genes that crops carry, we could then exploit and manipulate uh, those combinations of genes in better ways. And we have done that very effectively. And most of our crop production has relied on crop breeding. But the reason I say that's a little bit in a vacuum is that once we sequenced many of these genomes, we discovered it isn't simply the collection of genes themselves, it's how they're expressed. And let me just give you a really easy example of that. We, we know that, uh, that, that we, we've sequenced our own genome, and we've also sequenced a chimp's genome. We know that we don't look like chimpanzees or think like chimpanzees. And yet we know that about 98% of our genetic information is shared with chimpanzees. So what we had to learn from that experience, except, you know, other than the uh, humility, is that, in fact, what really differentiates us is not our genes, but how we express them. And that's very much the missing link, I would contend, in our plant breeding efforts. We've understood what combinations of genes, but we don't know how they express themselves. And therefore, we can't really capture the full value of what we're putting into these crops. So what I'm talking about is plant phenotypic plasticity. What I mean is that although we put one combination of genes together, how that combination of genes will respond to different environments, we don't understand that much about. Well, let me tell you something else. It turns out that when a plant actually, this is what we believe to date. Everything I will tell you today may change 10 years from now, 
It's the nature of science, but this is what we know now. A plant experiences dramatic stress. It has some capability of transmitting a memory of that stress to its progeny. And what we often find, and we find ecologists find particularly in natural environments, is that plants that are coming from a stressed mother will actually be pre-adapted to some extent to that stress. Plants that are growing in unusually high light often will be pre-adapted to high light. The same species living in, in the shade of the understory of a forest won't have that pre-adaptation in their progeny. What is the nature of that memory, that capability of a mother plant to almost uh, warn its progeny, you're going to be seeing this stress, be ready for it. We'd like to understand that because if we understand it, we might be able to exploit it. We call that transgenerational uh, uh, responses. We know that they are in effect for heat, cold, drought, light, and also reproductive isolation, which is where I first discovered this. And that was because my laboratory many years ago was studying a plant's ability to become male sterile, to turn off its pollen production. And the interesting thing I discovered about that was, yes, we could find ways to make plants turn off pollen production, but often, under certain conditions, they'd figured out a way to turn it back on. This, of course, was really problematic for, uh, for breeders because they wanted male sterility so they could produce hybrids cheaply. And they didn't want that thing turning back on. And that on-off switch was really a problem for them. So my lab took it on. And what we discovered was that there was some sort of a signal in a plant that they could tell when they were in reproductive isolation, when there was nobody of their own species to mate with within proximity. They'd set out a flush of flowers, nothing would happen. Another flush of flowers, nothing would happen. Suddenly, they'd flip the switch, become male fertile at the very end of their cycle. I think it's self-preservation. But the interesting thing was they sensed their environment in order to do this, probably through a carbon signal. And, and that was the nature of the work that I'm showing up here, is if you look at that REV lane, you can see that you're actually looking at DNA fragments that I'm showing you on a gel. There's a, a band that's missing, and that's the, that's the band that actually has a male sterility gene, and it would basically disappear. I won't go into the details of how it does this. It's by a recombination mechanism that we studied for many years. The fact is that recombination mechanism somehow was sensing the environment, and the plant was able to turn itself from male sterile to fertile in response to a cue. Well, what if we understood that in response to drought or in response to high light? Etc. So in the process of understanding this phenomenon that we were studying of a plant's on-off switch for male sterility, we cloned the switch. It was a gene that we call MSH1. You don't need to know what that stands for, but MSH1 is actually a gene that uh, is unique to plants. We don't have it in us. We have something that's related. Um, we only find it in green things, but we find it in all green things. And this particular uh, gene actually has the capability of changing a plant profoundly in response to its environment, not just for male sterility. Okay, And this is the real key of what I want to tell you about today. This plant, uh, excuse me, this gene actually makes a protein and that protein finds itself in the energy centers of the cell. In our cells, we have one energy center. It's, it, they're compartments called mitochondria. 
Basically, whatever you had for breakfast involved carbohydrates. You, as you sit there and you respire, you breathe in and out. The only reason you're breathing oxygen is to take care of those mitochondria and what they do. And what they're doing right now is taking the carbohydrate that you ate, turning it into ATP, which is what your cells can use for their energy. Well, plants have two energy compartments. They have mitochondria like we do, and they do basically the same thing. And then they have the chloroplast, which makes them green, which captures light energy and in very profoundly ingenious ways, splits water in order to capture energy through electron transfer to make, make energy that which you eat. This protein actually finds its way both into mitochondria and into chloroplasts, which I don't think is an accident. And here I'm just showing you what mitochondria look like, and I'm showing you down below in that DNA banding pattern that you can see that when we disrupt this particular gene, there are rearrangements in the genetic information of mitochondria. This is one of the tricks that this gene actually can carry out because it is that trick that allows it its on-off switch for male sterility. But in addition, it works in the chloroplast. You can see green and white on that plant when I've disrupted this gene, and that's because the chloroplasts are working differently now. But here's the catch. When you disrupt this gene, you also get changes in development of the plant that make that plant able to withstand very high levels of light. Here you're looking at 1,000 microeinstein levels of light, which plants don't like. This particular plant is just a model plant. It's actually a weed in your backyard. It's called Arabidopsis thaliana. And Arabidopsis, basically, you weed out of your, your lawn every year. But in fact, it turns out to be a really nice model because it's so small and easy to grow in the greenhouse or in, the, in a controlled growth environment. So here you're looking at one of those plants I modified that's growing just fine and making seed under a 1,000 microeinstein. And right next to it, to its left, to its left, you're seeing a normal wild type where I haven't disrupted that gene. And you can see what normal, what, what high light will do to normal plants for the exact same amount of time. On the right panel where you see that deep dip in that dashed line, that's what my altered plant is doing to reactive oxygen. Reactive oxygen is a very damaging uh, molecule in your cells. The reason you eat blueberries, they always say it has antioxidant properties. That's what you're trying to take care of. You want antioxidant properties to control and modulate reactive oxygen in your cells. They cause cancer. But in, in a plant cells, they're also equally damaging. And what you're looking at is what reactive oxygen does in its levels under highlight in that deep dish, that dashed line on the right, versus what wild type would do, which is the dark line with the triangles, where it goes uh, up uh, in response to highlight. Let me tell you in response to drought what happens to these same plants. On the left-hand side of that panel, you're seeing wild type. They're bigger. They're all fully green. But on the right-hand side, where you see some of those variegated plants, those are the ones that we modified by basically disrupting this particular gene. Now we expose them to drought. We let them go 14 days without any water at all, okay, in a growth condition. And I've circled the ones that I want you to watch in the next panel because now we've rewatered. That ability to basically regrow after such extreme drought, we only find in this particular material. And here I'm just showing you a blow up to show you these are truly alive. And in fact, you notice down in that left-hand corner, they're flowering. They'll go on to make viable seed. That capacity to withstand stress all seems to reside in plants that have lost only this one protein. Now, what also goes on in these plants after we've 
just downregulated this one single gene, is we find that they actually think they're perennials. They become woody, which you're looking at in that stem. Down in the lower left-hand corner, you're seeing cross-sections where you see in that MSH1 panel that there's a lot of green, and that's because we're looking at secondary growth, at woody growth within the stem of this otherwise herbaceous plant. What you see on the very top is that these plants grow much slower than normal. And what you see down in the right-hand corner is that their leaf shell shape tells us that they think they're, perenni they're, that they're juveniles much longer. That transition to maturity takes a lot longer. These plants are fundamentally changed in their development, not only for flower time, but in their maturation process, in their response to environmental stress. These things have been just turned upside down. And I only modulated one gene to get there, okay? Well, here's the really cool thing about it, and that is that I've been showing you a weed in your backyard up to now, which is the model system that my lab works with. But in fact, this system is operable in all crops. So what you're looking at now is that we've actually now used a transgenic approach to downregulate or, or knock down that same gene, or its ortholog, in various species that we care a little bit more about, like tomato and soybean, tobacco, millet, sorghum. We've also done this in wheat, and we've also done it in rice. And what I want you to notice in the lower left-hand corner is that's a sorghum plant, that very short, highly branched, is a sorghum plant when it's not expressing this gene properly. Up above it are the leaf morphology changes that we see in tobacco, which are profound. In the middle panel there, you can see a tobacco plant that instead of its tall, growing, normal way that those normally grow right out the, the top of my greenhouse, instead is low to the ground, very highly branched. These are not agronomically valuable traits. But, I mean, these, these plants are very abnormal. But it tells me that I can dramatically modulate the way a plant grows, and I can fool a plant into thinking it's seen all kinds of stress when, in fact, I'm growing it under normal conditions. We didn't know we could do this before. Now, here's the other catch to this. I put a transgene in those crops in order to downregulate this gene so I could create these changes. And now I can remove that transgene just by normal segregation. And what I will see is that these changes remain. They remain stable indefinitely. I can grow this, these plants for eight, 10 generations, and they continue to maintain this developmental reprogramming. Now, why is that important? Because it tells us that we can now really, in dramatic ways, mod modify crops in ways we didn't know we could modify them before. And I'll get to that in a minute. I just want to convince you that these plants are really changed. Here we're just looking at changes in gene, the types of genes that are expressed differently in these plants. And this is just a small number. There are more than 3,000 genes that are really modulated in expression when we, when we do this phenomenon, when we downregulate this one gene. They're, they involve cell cycle and growth. They involve redox and oxidative stress, those things I was talking about a minute ago. These plants think that they're under stress all the time. They involve phytohormone responses, which say that dramatic developmental changes can happen in these plants. And again, I've only modulated one gene. More importantly, when I added that transgene, I could take it back out, and these plants would hold on to this effect. That's a transgenerational response to stress. Even though they haven't seen stress, I'm just telling you I think I'm recapitulating what Mother Nature can do on her own. And of course, 
this was the real key to what we were studying, it turns out that the kinds of genes we were looking at looked reminiscent for us. These are all, lots of the genes that I'm circling here are genes involved in flowering, where they've been studied in much more detail in plants, much more detail than the other things I'm looking at now. Many of these genes had one thing in common that I knew from the literature, and that is that these genes were modulated not genetically, but epigenetically. Epigenetics is a field that's emerging right now very rapidly in biomedical science. Epigenetics, you would have heard out perhaps because as we look at tumor cells relative to our own healthy cells, we find that the tumor cell has exactly the same genetic information as our healthy cells. What's different is how they express their genes. And this has given rise to a field that we refer to as epigenetics. It isn't just the gene itself, it's basically the decorations that go on those genes, the additions that go on those genes that affect the way they're gonna be expressed, not only in this generation, but in subsequent generations. Those decorations are things that your cells do in response to environment, in response to development, um, and plants can do this in response to stress. All of those genes we were finding modulated in our system were also genes we already knew were modified epigenetically. So what we did, so I want to define for you just for a moment what epigenetics involves. Normally when we think about plant breeding, we think about doing it through genetics. And what that means is that we take a DNA sequence of a gene and we change it, or we look for places where Mother Nature's already changed it, and usually those involve mutations. Changes in DNA sequence that make it better, make it worse, make it different. And we look for those differences, for that variation, and that it is that variation that fuels our plant breeding efforts. And of course, as you can imagine, especially from the last talk you heard, that variation is not very plentiful anymore. It's because we're losing species. We're losing them faster than we can actually catalog them. And we're losing genetic diversity faster than we can actually capture it into our plant breeding program. So we have to look for new sources, and that's one of the challenges that we've got before us. Well, these genetic mutations can be, uh, a value of that, or, or can be valuable that way. The other way that plant breeders do this is through recombination, crossing two unlike types and mixing up their genetic information in such a way that it gives us new combinations of genes. Very, very effective for plant breeding. The approach I want to add to that is epigenetic changes. So at the center of my little uh, circle there, what I want to point out are all the little arrows that are pointing outward. All of these are different ways that you can modify genes. They can involve basically changing the, the proteins and the way that the proteins, uh, the way that the proteins sit on DNA, those little around uh, circles there. They can actually involve what we call histone modifications, where we modify the proteins that associate with DNA. And down at the bottom right-hand corner, we can methylate DNA. We can add little methyl groups to DNA that will actually serve as on-off switches as well. The only type of epigenetic modification we know of that can go generation to generation, therefore might be useful in breeding, are methylation changes to DNA. Now, let me point out to you that when we make these changes like we've done, in, now you're looking at my sorghum plants, the sorghum plants my lab has created, where we've actually down-regulated that gene I told you about, we can grow them seven, eight different generations, they still look the same. They don't revert back to normal. They keep this, even though these don't have any genetic change in them. We've made not one single change. We put a transgene in, took it back out, the plant remains the same. 
but developmentally, as you can see, they're dramatically altered. Well, here's the really important part that gets into the, the idea of capturing this value for plant breeding, which may be one of the ways that we can actually address some of the challenges we see. And that is that if we take a plant that's been modified in the way I described, you see it in the right-hand side there, and you compare it to its original wild type, they're genetically identical. So we did this in Texas 430, which is a commonly known line of sorghum that we grow here on campus. Texas 430 crossed to Texas 430, where we've gone in and made a temporary change. And what you see in the progeny is enhanced growth, enhanced above-ground biomass, enhanced seed production, and enhanced vigor. What's more important about that is that that enhancement can actually uh, cross-species lines. In other words, we see it in Arabidopsis as well. When we make the same changes in Arabidopsis, and then we cross it to its original unmodified type, you see also this enhancement in growth, enhancement in vigor, enhancement in productivity. Now, in addition to that, what it turns out is that we can breed with this. So now you're looking at a field that's growing out here in, in Havelock, right outside of town here where on the left-hand side, you're seeing our original Texas 430, and you see how short it is. It actually stands probably about waist-high if there were somebody out there. Everything to the right you're seeing is the genetic, no, the epigenetic material that we've created from that line. No genetic change has gone on in this field as far as we know. Any genetic change that has occurred has occurred as a consequence of the epigenetic changes we've made but we've made no definable plant breeding effort here. We started with one line, we're ending up with the same line. But look at the amount of variation that you're seeing in plant height. If you look very closely, you can see differences in, in flowering date. You can see, if, as I show you in a moment, we actually have differences in seed size, seed number, panicle size, panicle weight, above ground architecture, and above ground biomass production. All of these things are changing as a result of a cross of Texas 430 times Texas 430. This is not the way breeding has traditionally gone. What I believe that I'm doing here is breeding the epigenome. I don't think I'm making genetic changes here at all. I think I'm making epigenetic changes. And what does this tell us? But that there is true potential, unrealized potential, for enhance, enhancing our breeding capability. Excuse me, our breeding capabilities. I just want to remind you what that plant looked like that I started with. Down here on the lower right-hand corner is that funny short plant that arose when I downregulated one single gene. Now, variation can also be expressed in these graphs. So I wanted to show you in terms of plant height. What you're looking at is the distribution of plant height for Texas 430 on the top in 2010, and then in 2011 we grew these out in the field. Down below that are all the materials that we modified. And look at the range of mean, and look at the range, just the sheer range, in plant height that we're seeing none of this coming, as far as we knew, from any genetic change that we were making. Now, these are the changes that we see for grain yield per panicle. Again, look at the range, upward and downward, for the amount of grain that you're producing per panicle as a consequence of basically no genetic manipulation at all, only this one manipulation that we introduced. Now, in addition to that, what I want to tell you is that as you grow these over years, I made no change there either. Um, so as we grow these over years, what you see is 
that not only does this respond to selection, so over on the left-hand side of both of those bar graphs, you see Texas 430. On the top, what we're looking at is plant height. On the bottom, we're looking at grain panicle. Uh, a grain per panicle. Now, I, I don't want to suggest those are the only two things that changed. It's just that I can't show you all of the data here. But what I want to point out to you is look at the progress that we made in basically two cycles of selection. So where you started out at about 125 for height, you're now up to about over 200 centimeters in height. When you're looking at grain yield per panicle, you started out at about 45 uh, grams per panicle. You're upwards of close to 70 or 75 in some of these lines. That kind of range is not common. What I also want to point out on the right, where you're seeing those box uh, graphs, is that if you look at Texas 430, which is the dashed line, which is the mean across the bottom, and then you look at the progress we made, starting with an F2 to an F3 to an F4, that just means that you're taking progeny from the original selected line. Look at the progress that we make in terms of looking at the mean in each of those boxes. The range is represented by the dots that you're seeing there. It's remarkable range. And I remind you again, we've not made any genetic manipulations. All we've done is modify in this one way that I described to you. This says that we as breeders have not been capturing all of the capacity that we could have in the way that we manipulate our crops. And it gives us a little bit of hope that maybe, maybe everything you heard in that last talk doesn't have to be the last uh, our last response, as, as plant scientist, I mean. So now this gives you an idea of the kind of range that we're seeing. So I'm just showing you that we're just harvesting one panicle. You can just look at the left versus the right and know that we've made a real difference in only two cycles of selection in the way that this plant is performing. But it's still Texas 430. In addition, this phenomenon works in soybeans. So now you're looking at a soybean. On the left, that which has been selected. On the right, that which is unmodified. But genetically, they're identical. It's just thorn, which is an old variety that we really don't grow very much in soybean anymore. Again, in Rutgers, which is, again, a really old variety of tomato we don't grow anymore. On the left is the unmodified. On the right is the modified. And what you're looking at in the middle is basically the flowering and fruit production of Rutgers unmodified and Rutgers which has been modified. So this gives us some hope that in fact there's quite a bit of variation we've not had access to before. It's epigenetic variation, but there's no reason to believe that it's not stable variation. And then of course there was last year. We went along testing these models and all of a sudden we got hit with drought. We got hit uh, with drought in the field that we were growing in as well. Now remember that this is sorghum. So it doesn't put us out of business like it did a lot of the corn that was around us. But of course, now we're looking at two locations. We grew it in Havelock, and we grew it in Mead, which is about an hour from here. And what you're looking at there in the white uh, bars are wild type, how Texas 430 behaved. And as you can see in the two different environments in response to this stress, they behaved very, very differently. What you see in the boxes next to them is some of the variation that we had outgrowing there. That isn't all the variation there is. We didn't actually plant this to look at the range of variation because nobody told us we were going to have a drought that year. If we'd known, we would have put out all of our materials so we could have seen the full range of how they'd perform. I want you to see that some of them outperformed wild type and some of them underperformed wild type, but all of them held firm. In other words, we didn't see losses in response to this uh, in many of our materials in Havelock. When we went to the most severe environment, which is clearly mead, what you see is the range of variation gets greater. Now, what's important about this 
is that if you are a plant breeder in this audience, I don't know how many there are out there, so I'll just introduce you to this for those of you who are not. You know this phenomenon. It's very characteristic to you because you learned about it in quantitative genetics class as genotype by environment interaction. It means that when we would develop varieties and we would grow them on different plots, they would perform wildly differently. Some of them really great yielders, and then we would grow them in a different environment and suddenly they were the poorest yielder. So how do you get a yield gene and identify a yield gene when some days it's here and some days it's there? And that's been really the, the bane of quantitative genetics for a long time is we don't understand genotype genes by environment interaction. What I would propose to you is that what we've actually been looking at in a lot of this has been epigenetics by environment interaction. And in fact, now you're looking at some of our materials. On the right is the best environment, on the left is the worst environment, and you're looking across that range of environments to the performance. Those that were performing best in the best environment may not have been performing best in the poorer environment. And that cross-section gives us an idea that in fact we might now start to really understand how to make our varieties perform best in multiple environments now that we know that the epigenetic component is something we can actually grasp as well. Up until now, this was inaccessible to the breeder. And this looks at the performance of some of our lines in the same way, and as you can see, there's a wide range in how they perform uh, in each of these environments, and you can see that there is some crossing of those lines which say that we can actually learn something about those performing in the best environments and how they're gonna perform in the least uh, of those environments. We can also now start taking environment by environment measurements and making some predictions perhaps as to how these are gonna perform in different environments. And this gets me to the last point of what we think is actually going on here. What we think we're actually doing isn't modifying the genetic information of these plants, we're likely modifying the epigenetic information of these plants. And so we've gone in and studied the, ep the, the methylome or the methylation patterns that occur. DNA is made up of four bases, C's, G's, T's, and A's. And cytosines, the C's, actually have the capability of being methylated or not methylated. And so you can decorate DNA with these methyl groups all along the cytosines. And depending on where those methyl, methyl groups reside, and whether they're in the regulatory part of the gene or in the gene body itself, or maybe downstream past the gene, makes a difference to the effect that they will have. Not only that, but the density of methylation will make a difference as well. So we went in and we actually compared this. What you're looking at here are the cytosines, those Cs that have methyl groups on them. And what actually happens is you can now go in and sequence the entire genome. And by using a very specialized method, you can actually go in and look at those cytosines that actually had a methyl group on them and differentiate them from those cytosines that didn't. So you can actually go in to those crops that we've selected and those crops that we haven't and ask, did we actually change the placement of those cytosines? And will this be heritable to subsequent generations? It's a new way of doing breeding. We're not changing the DNA. We're changing the decorations that are on DNA, which are not permanent, by the way. So we went through and we sequenced the entire genome. And we sequenced all of these methylation sites, which you're looking at is more than 4 million of them. Those cytosines reside in different environments, some of them sitting right next to a G, some of them sitting right across from a G, some of them sitting next to other different types of nucleotides that are not Gs. And what we can do is actually size up the entire genome for the placement of these 
methyl groups on these cytosines everywhere, on every chromosome, on every cytosine. And when we do that in our modifications, what we find are dramatic differences that occur. So what I'm going to show you there is where you look at those, those bar graphs on the top that are colorized, what you see in red are the, are the gene bodies. That's the gene space of the genome. That's where our expressed genes reside for a plant. And what I want you to see is in that CG panel, I want you to see how much higher that red bar is on the left than on the right because that change is a change in the amount of or the changing of methylation in the genes within the crops as we did this experiment. What I want to show you down on the next panel where you have those squiggly lines is that where you see each one of those little graphs, each one represents an individual chromosome. And we've gone through and looked at how many methylation sites we can see. And what I want you to notice is simply that the pattern on the left is very different from the pattern on the right. The pattern on the left is where we first made our changes uh, to make those very small stunted plants that thought they had seen stress. The pattern on the right are all of the changes that we see after we make a cross and we see this enhanced growth with higher yields, with above ground biomass. And what I want you to notice is that those patterns are very different. We've clearly altered the methylation pattern of these crops as we've started to manipulate them in this way. And what I want you to notice on the bottom in panel E is where you see on the left that it's mostly in blue. That says that when we made those small stunted plants, we mostly made them hypermethylated. They took on methylation groups. And where you see the light blue and the, and the, and the dark blue in the right panel, what that says is that we've, in the next cycle, taken off some of those methyl groups. So we even know the trends that are taking place to make a plant think that it's stressed and then to make a plant highly productive. This is powerful because it gives us the opportunity to go in and really understand gene by gene how to really optimize the productivity of a plant. Not just by its combination of genes, but by those decorations we put on those genes, well, Mother Nature does, in order to allow those plants to be productive. This seems to me to be a new level of breeding. This seems to me to be superimposed on our breeding, not in any way to substitute for breeding, but to enhance our breeding capabilities. The last thing I want to tell you about is where this comes from. These changes seem to come from the chloroplast, and we know that by one simple experiment. So what you're looking at in the upper left-hand panel is Columbia Zero, it's just the wild type, it's the plant we never modified. And on the right of that, MSH1 are these funny spindly plants that think they've seen stress. On the right-hand side, where you see dual-targeted, means that we took one of those funny spindly plants, we put back the normal gene, and we got it back to normal. Down in the lower-hand corner, where it says plastid-targeted, we made a transgene with MSH1, but now that protein will only go to the chloroplast, not to the mitochondrion. And you see how we made those plants look normal again? That means that we could substitute and get those plants back to normal by just replacing the chloroplast form of that protein without the mitochondrial. That tells us that those signals that the plant is responding to, it seems to be responding to through its chloroplast, that energy generating, photosynthesizing organelle. So now I'm going to tell you that the way that this seems to operate is that chloroplasts are all through the plant, but there's a special type of chloroplast that we didn't know about before. My lab calls them sensory 
chloroplasts or sensory plastids. And they reside right along the circulatory system of the plant. So what you're looking at up there is a petal where we have actually attached to uh, this protein, MSH1, a green fluorescent protein so that you can see it. So now you can see where that protein resides and it's all along the venation of the plant, which is its circulatory system. We think that's important because the circulatory system is where a plant transmits signals. So maybe what MSH1 does is to sense its environment and transmit a signal. Well, what kind of a signal might that be? Well, we went in and we looked at some of these chloroplasts. So here you're looking at, you're looking at down on a leaf, and what you're seeing is those big red round circles are chloroplasts. They look red to the eye because of the particular uh, wavelength that I'm using. So you're seeing the autofluorescence of its photosynthetic membrane. So it's, it's sending back red to me. But what you're looking at in the green fluorescent spots is where MSH1 is. And notice that it's not sitting in the main chloroplast. For the most part, it's sitting in little teeny tiny chloroplasts that were, where you're residing, you can't even see. I mean, where you're sitting, you can't see. Now, if I were to take my, my microscope and put it much closer to the venation, to the circulatory system of the plant, now you see how much more dense those spots get. And that's because, again, they're not sitting in, in large photosynthetic chloroplasts. They're sitting in these little sensory chloroplasts, and those little sensory chloroplasts are much more numerous there. Here's just a, just an electron micrograph just to show off some of the equipment we have on campus here. So if you look up on the top, what you're seeing is where I call it an epidermal sensory plastid. See how much smaller it is to what I call a mesophyll plastid, which is basically your photosynthetic plastids. Those are the ones that are doing the job of photosynthesis. So those little small chloroplasts that are sitting up on the surface of the cell, uh, surface of the leaf, and sitting along the... Uh, Along the vein, here if you look on the left-hand panel, you see that section near the vein. They're very small. They're different from the large photosynthetic chloroplasts, and I think they serve a specific function, that which is to sense their environment, because they look so different from a normal chloroplast in their structure, and they seem to be the only chloroplasts that have this particular protein in them. And in fact, this is just for the aficionados in the audience. It turns out that this particular protein we're studying sits on the thylakoid membrane. So you can see that band on the upper level there where we're using antibody against the protein we care about and showing that it's in the thylakoid membrane. The thylakoid membrane is where photosynthesis goes on. That was a, a clue for us because we know the kinds of proteins that sit there. So we can actually use a yeast system, and this is a very interesting system, where everywhere that you see blue on those little squares you're looking down on a petri plate is where we took a yeast cell, and we put our protein, or, or a gene that expresses our protein in there, and we asked, of all the different genes in a plant, which one does it interact with? And whenever they interact, they produce that blue color. So what you can see there is we got blue color for several proteins that are of interest to me. PSBO1, PSBO2, PPD. Uh, these are all proteins involved in photosynthesis, involved in light capture, or in, in uh, basically light capture for energy. So this gets really interesting because now we've identified a protein that senses its environment and somehow operates through photosynthesis. It's a protein that's never been seen by the photosynthesis groups that study photosynthesis because I think they weren't looking in the right chloroplasts.
And in fact, where this protein seems to operate, down in the right-hand corner, I'm showing you what you probably don't remember from your very first Biochem 101 class, but it is basically the laws of photosynthesis. So what you're looking at is what actually happens when we talk about photosynthetic reactions and we capture light. And so what it means is that our protein sits right amongst the proteins that seem to capture light and conduct electron transfer. Why is this important? Because aside from collecting light for energy, plants also use this pathway for making signals. And those signals are the kind I was telling you about earlier. They're reactive oxygen, and they're what we call redox signals. They're electron-generated, energy-generated signals throughout a plant. So this is what we think is a signaling mechanism. And here you're looking at a cross-section of a leaf where you can actually see on the very outside rim is where the epidermis would be, where all that red is is where photosynthesis goes on, and where the little green speckles are are where the veins are, and that's where the protein is that I'm studying. So you can see a collection of those little green spots right near the veins, right where they would have to be to send a signal through the circulatory system of this plant. So that's our model. That's what we think happens. We think plants have the capacity to sense their environment, create a signal, send that signal through the plant, and actually change the epigenetic configuration of that plant for the next generation. Now, uh, if we can actually capture that information in, uh, in our own breeding programs, we can probably, in fact, produce plants that are now primed to be much more ready for environmental stress than they have been before. Not only that, but we can perhaps capture this value in enhanced growth potential of our crops relative to what we're doing now in traditional plant breeding modes. What I want to point out to you with this last slide is this is a slide that just shows you to the left of that bar a gene going down in expression, to the, to the right of the bar a gene going up in expression. Notice all the dots are going down in expression in response to different kinds of stresses that are listed there. Abiotic stresses like salt and drought and wounding response and um, osmotic stress and hypoxia. And what you're looking at is the expression of MSH1 naturally. In fact, in nature, in response to stress, MSH1 is consistently downregulated. Very similar, I think, to the downregulation that my lab has been artificially imposing on these plants. So all of the things that I just told you about are things that it seems Mother Nature can do on her own. So if we can actually capture this, exploit this, we might actually have the opportunity to enhance our breeding capabilities beyond where we are now. And this is a model. There you're looking at a cross-section of a model of a chloroplast, which is the organelle, as I said, that generates our energy from light. But when it's not expressing MSH1, what we have then are all kinds of changes in response to light, heat, drought, vernalization, and uh, a perennialization of these plants. This is the capability plants have innately that we basically haven't known about. That's what happens when MSH1 is downregulated. However, if you take a crop like that and you cross it to its wild type, what you will see is this enhanced growth capability, this enhanced vigor, this enhanced yield capacity for basically any crop I think that we apply this to. So this is an exciting time at the same time that it's a very critical time for us to learn how, as plant biologists, we can meet some of the demands that we're going to see in this next generation. And with that, I'm going to leave you with a list of the names of the people who truly did this work. Some of them are in the audience today. 
I have a phenomenal group of people that work with me from all over the world. They join us here to do this research because they believe in this research and they believe that they can make a difference. Uh, some of them are in plant breeding programs. Some of them are in molecular biology programs. Some of them have just come to study the epigenome with us. But as I say, they all believe they can make a difference by uh, putting their work together. So with that, I thank you for your attention. Thank you.